please open them to the book of Hebrews and uh, the seventh chapter as we are actually moving forward just a little bit in Hebrews chapter 7. Um, so if you'll join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's word. We're going to start at verse 1. We'll read through verse 4 today and focus our attention on verse 4. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, being first translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give to us clarity and understanding. We pray, God, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we would see Christ enlarged and made much of. Father, it's always our goal and always our aim to lift high the name of Jesus, to magnify his glory, to magnify his greatness, to make much of you. And we pray, Father, that we would hear truth, accomplished, applied, and lived out as we consider what it means to see Christ as he is. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus told us that loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and all of our mind was the greatest commandment. It is the manifestation of the whole law distilled into a single idea. Now the truth is we fail at this always, since we can never fully complete it. However, we also fail in ways which should not be. Every time we have a sin problem, the truth is we have a love problem. We don't love God enough. We don't love Jesus enough. We love our flesh, and we love our sin. So in truth, the solution to sin is love, and the solution to love is sight. We don't love God enough because we don't see him clearly enough. We allow the world to define our vision of God. We allow the culture to frame and curtail his self-revelation And we allow our own sinful hearts to relegate him to a Sunday morning obligation rather than a constant source and target for our lives. We all came from him, and to him we all will return. And that return will be to him as he actually is. With this in mind, I want to do as the writer of Hebrews commends and consider the greatness of this man. I want to consider the greatness of Jesus Christ, and I want to think on who he is, on what he has done, and what he offers to his children. We see him both foreshadowed and pre-incarnate in this man Melchizedek, and through the submission of Abraham, and through him all the people of God, we find that this greatness was shining fully. Abraham saw him clearly, and prayerfully, so too shall we. So the first thing we need to understand is that Jesus, uh, standing before Abraham in the person of Melchizedek, displayed his character and his nature profoundly. He displayed himself in such a way that Abraham submitted and yielded and surrendered a tithe, received the blessing that was promised. And the very first thing that we know about him is that he is great in power and might. Psalm 65, verses 5 and 6 say this, By awesome deeds and righteousness you will answer us. 
O God of our salvation. You who are the confidence of all the ends of the earth and the far off seas, who establish the mountains by your strength, being clothed with power. Now somebody's immediately going to say, well, that verse is about God. I don't see Jesus or Melchizedek mentioned there, but I wanted you to think about this with me in light of what the rest of Scripture says. So look at Colossians chapter 1. Turn there if you would, please. Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. Paul writes this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So what we see in Colossians is echoed in other places in Scripture. And it is this idea that when God displayed his majesty and his might in creating the mountains and making the world and having all things formed according to the express purpose of his will who really was engaged in the process was Christ Jesus. Now, I'm not just drawing this from Colossians. Turn with me now to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 says this in verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Or if you turn back just a little bit in Hebrews chapter 1, the start of Hebrews tells us this. I grabbed way too many pages. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 1, starting at verse 1, gives us this. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, When he by himself had purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So it is in the might and power and will and strength and purpose of Christ that all things not only were made, but all things are sustained. What keeps our world functioning at all? God. It is the will of God in Christ. It is the express purpose and the intentional work and the singular act of the will of Christ to bind together all things that make the world function in the way that it functions. There is no part of our existence and no part of our life that is exempt from his control. Whatever's going on in your life, whatever's going on in your world, whatever you're experiencing, whatever you have seen, it is there because God in Christ has made it and has sustained it, and has ordained it, and has brought it to be. This is his will. This is his power, and none can gainsay him. So the very first thing that we need to really recognize when we're thinking about how we consider the greatness of God, the greatness of Christ Jesus in particular, is that there is absolutely nothing that is outside of his control. Now, the world is going mad around us, and all over the place we see things deteriorating rapidly, and we see things changing, and and for those of us who think biblically, and those of us who think 
with, with an eye towards the glory of God, it's a little disturbing to see things happening the way they're happening. But the truth is this. While we ought to be disturbed by the sin that's around us, we need not be undone by it. Because we have the confident knowledge that God is on his throne and that nothing which is occurring is happening outside of his prerogative and outside of his will. There is a purpose and there is a fullness of revelation of joy in everything that's going on. And I know that sometimes the circumstances that we're facing make it almost impossible for us to believe that. Which is why we have to make sure that we front load this knowledge in our lives before we get to those dark days. You've got to make sure that you're putting this in all the time. You have to make certain that whenever anything's happening, you're recognizing the sovereign hand of God controlling all things in your life and controlling all things in his creation so that when the bottom falls out, because it will, you're not undone. What will sustain you in those days is the knowledge and the truth and the understanding of everything that God has given you in the days prior to it. Now, he will sustain you as well, and he will give you revelation in those times, and he will give you wisdom and knowledge, and he will open his word to you. But the truth of the matter is, is that if you are positioning yourself now to see his glory and see his power and acknowledge his strength and acknowledge his might, and to actually build that truth into your life so that it is the constant flow of your, of your everything, then when those things happen, you will find it much easier to deal with them. You will find yourself better positioned and better able to function when nothing makes sense around you. Part of the problem that the church is experiencing in America today is that for decades we haven't been doing that. For decades we've been chasing the God of our own imagination and chasing a God that promises health and wealth and prosperity and foolishness. And we've been chasing the ways of the world and thinking that if we will just do it like the world does, then we'll win like the world does. We've been making things up that aren't biblical and that aren't true. And now when things are getting bad, all of a sudden we don't quite know how to respond. And you can see it in the, in the church at large in America. You can see people really reeling from how crazy things are getting. And you're seeing churches turn aside from the truth and surrender to lies because they have nothing else to, to lean on except whatever the culture tells them is true. This is why churches are, are affirming the homosexual agenda and affirming abortion and affirming all of these evils that are ravaging our land. It's because they spent their days chasing foolishness instead of seeing God as he is, instead of seeing Christ as the sovereign over all of creation and lifting high the name of Jesus. See, all of life is theological. And what you live is a direct result of what you believe. You have to understand truth so that you might live it out. And the beginning for all of it, the basis for the entire package, is the power and the might and the sovereignty of God in Christ Jesus over all of his creation. So as we're going to think about considering the greatness of him, we have to consider that power. We also need to consider that he is great in the order of precedent. Now look again at Colossians chapter 1. I want you to see this. We're going to draw some things out of this. Colossians chapter 1. And uh, we'll read this passage again. We just read it a moment ago, but it's worth hearing again. Starting at verse 15. He, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So what this gives us is the reality that the firstborn had the right of the inheritance. The full inheritance belonged to the firstborn. It was theirs by right. And they were given all things, and then they, they, they willingly gave portions back out. The idea is that Christ shares his inheritance with us according to his own desire and according to his own power. But all things belong to him, and he deserves that all things be given to him. This is about his worth. This is about the fact that Christ is worth the loss of all things and worth the surrender of all things. And Christ is worthy of being king over all things. He is the firstborn over all creation. It does not say he's the firstborn of creation. He is not a created being. But he is the firstborn over all creation in in right of supremacy and in right of authority. This means that he has the right to govern his own. Beloved, hear this. Whatever he does is right. Whatever he does is truth. Whatever he does is pure. Whatever he does is best. And it's hard for us sometimes to understand that. It's hard for us to believe that when things are going sideways on us. But we must wrestle this truth out every single day. What we know is what the scripture tells us. What we feel is our experience. And we often get these things confused. There's a song popular on the radio right now which says, um, it's talking about God delivering and it says something along the lines of, I know he did, so I know he can. And I have a problem with that because it's basing their knowledge of his power on their own experience. He did this, and I can look at my own experience of it, and that's what I'm basing my belief that he can do something else. And that's a wrong perspective. There's truth in the fact that he did it, and there's truth in the fact that he can do it, but the reason why we know that he can is because he says he can, and because of who he is. We know that he can sort all things out. We know that he can step his foot into the midst of this world and straighten it out, faster than that. And we know that in the fullness of time and at the right moment, he will do exactly that. He will set his foot on the Mount of Olives and all will see him and those who hate him will cry out to the mountains, fall on us and hide us, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. And it is his prerogative to do that when he desires to do that. But we understand that he is worthy of ruling and worthy of of commanding and worthy of governing his creation, not because the circumstances work out how we want them to be. That makes sense? He's worthy because of him, because of his nature, because of who he is, and because of the fact that he is God made flesh. 
He is the incarnate Son of God. He, he pre-existed before anything was. God didn't make him and then through him make all things. He always has been God. And in the midst of our experience of this life, if we fashion our fundamental belief that Jesus is good because he has dealt with us well and the lines have fallen for us in pleasant places, if we base our fundamental belief in the goodness of his rule only in our experience of it, then what happens when our experience is not so pleasant? We back up from believing who he is. You see, if we allow our experience to govern our theology, we're going to be wrong. We need our theology to help us correctly interpret our experience. And in the end, if we don't have our eyes fixed steadfastly on Christ as he is presented in the Bible, then we're going to end up sideways on this. We're going to end up askew. We must understand that he has the birthright as being first in order of precedent. In other words, whatever he says, whatever he desires, whatever he decides is best, it is true, it is right, and he has the absolute authority to do it exactly how he wants, regardless of how we feel about it. And then knowing the fullness of his character, it gives us confidence that however it works out, in one point or another, we're going to stand and say, Lord, you have done what is right. Now, the delay in that is our failing and not his. The delay in that is our sin. The delay in that is our rebellion. The delay in that is our inability to see and our inability to trust. But at one point or another, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord over all. He is king. He is God. He is master over all things. That's what's summed up in that declaration of Christ being Lord. Now, if he is great in order of power and great in order of precedent, it's also really important for us to understand that he is great in his righteousness. This gives us hope and stability and comfort when things are not looking so well. Because we know that he is right in whatever he does. We know that he is righteous in whatever he does. Look at Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Jeremiah writes this, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our Righteousness. If our righteousness is derived from him, does it not follow that his righteousness is right? If everything that we look to and say, this is my hope, this is my righteousness, this is my life, this is my being, this is my purpose, this is my stand, this is where I make my claim, is in the righteousness of Christ. And believe me, beloved, that's where you want to stand. Does it not follow then that we must acknowledge that his righteousness is good and right and true and best? If if you're looking at the righteousness of Christ and you're not certain that it looks right, you're not certain that it's good, you're not certain that that he is true, then you're going to lean on your own. You're going to lean on your own laws, you're going to lean on your own ideas, you're going to lean on your own understanding, you're going to lean on your own imaginary pretenses, 
But the heart of the gospel says this. Our righteousness is filthy rags. Our best is worse than nothing. It would be better for us if we had no righteousness because then at least we could theoretically be neutral. (laughs) But since we protest that we have righteousness and lay our works before God and say, judge me by what I've done, God acknowledges our works and he acknowledges them in light of his own law and he says, your works are worse than filthy rags. Your works condemn you. You are under my wrath because of everything that you are and everything that you have done. You see, the place to stand is in the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, given to us by his acquiescence and given to us by his will, given to us by his death in our place, imputed to us by the express purpose and will of God. That's the righteousness that we need. It's not a combination of our works and his. It's not our abilities and then Jesus kind of tops off where we fail. It's the work of Christ applied to us. And his righteousness is everything. And what Jeremiah gives us is that it is the foundation of his rule. It is the thing that defines everything that he does. All of his works are good. All of his works are righteous. And if he is great in righteousness, then he is also great in faithfulness. Look at Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verses 89 to 91, it says this. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You establish the earth and it abides. They continue this day according to your ordinances, for all are your servants. So what keeps this rock spinning and doing its thing? It is the will and the word of God. What keeps this rock doing its thing? It is the express purpose and the express intention of Jesus Christ to be who he said he is. And it is faithfulness on God that we can lean on him. When I get up in the morning, I don't look to the west to see the sunrise. Do you know why? Because I won't see the sunrise if I look to the west. Because God is faithful and the sun rises in the east. He has made a world that functions according to his command. And it always functions according to his command. It always works exactly like it's supposed to. All the hubbub and hullabaloo about climate change, you know what? Things might be changing. But if they are, they're changing because God has willed it, not because we have changed or broken anything. And if things get turned around, it's because God has willed it, not because we have altered anything. And all of our efforts and all of our labors will only play into the purpose that God has for all things. And the sooner we recognize that truth, the happier we'll be. For us as followers of Christ, we must recognize that what sustains all things and what sustains us is the faithfulness of God. It is the faithfulness of Christ. It is the reality that no matter what, he can always be trusted. And he demonstrates that time and time and time again. Walk through the woods in the winter. Everything's dead. It's all cold. It's all covered in white. There's ice everywhere. It's all icky. Oh, when will spring ever come? And then one day, up come the crocuses. And suddenly you're reminded, oh yeah, spring does come. God is faithful. One season follows the next. It is so wondrous that God gives us every single day reminders that he is faithful. 
When we don't deserve it, He's faithful. When, when we turn away from Him, He is faithful. Paul tells us, in, or John tells us, that, that when we're faithless, notice Paul and Timothy, when we're faithless, He's faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. No matter what goes on, our God is always faithful. He's always doing exactly what he said he would do. This is why one of the fruits of the Spirit is faithfulness. Right? Galatians chapter 5. The, the, the fruit of the Spirit is what's given to us by the Spirit abiding in us. So whatever is good and praiseworthy and true and noble that comes out of us comes out of us because God dwells in us in his spirit and makes those things live. If you're faithful at all, it is the hand of God in your life. Whether you know him or not, it is still the hand of God that makes you faithful. It is still his mercy in your life to give you something that the people around you can cling to. The most lost man in the world who is a man of his word and will do what he says he's going to do regardless of cost and consequence, do you know why he is that way? Because God has made him that way. It gives him no praise, for it's not his will and it's not his work and it's not his strength and it's not his power. He'll take all the praise he can, but that's not really the reason. The reason is God has made him so. And God has made him so to be a blessing to the people in his life. It is the fruit of the Spirit in us that makes faithfulness be a part of us. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, he's called the faithful witness. And in Revelation 19, verse 11, we see this. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. So according to the book of Revelation, Jesus, one of the names of Jesus, is faithful. If we want to think about what it means to be faithful, we need to look no further than the person of Christ. Consider his greatness. Consider how faithfully he has cared for you. Consider how faithfully he has sustained you. Consider how faithfully he has done all that is needful to make certain that your life is still with us. It's his work. It's his glory. It's his strength. And when he takes you home... It is his faithfulness that will do that as well. His faithfulness gives us reason to trust him. Now, it's also important that we know that in that faithfulness, he is also wise. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll start reading at verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, and not many mighty, and not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. It is the wisdom of God that has been revealed to us in Christ Jesus. What this means is that often we will be facing circumstances and difficulties and trials and problems where the world has a way that it will solve. And those ways are going to be loudly proclaimed. They're going to be clearly displayed. They're going to be things that might not fit according to how the scripture says we're supposed to live. But many times you might be tempted to do what the world wants you to do because it will be easier in the short term. But wisdom says, you must do what God says, because Christ is wise, God is wise, and the world is foolish. There is a stark difference between what is wise in the eyes of the world and what is wise in the eyes of God. And ultimately, beloved, your life will be fashioned and shaped into a place where you must acknowledge the wisdom of God rather than the wisdom of man. You must lean in and you must cling to him because he alone gives us wisdom. And Christ has become for us that wisdom from God. Christ has become for us that which we cling to which says this is truth and this is wise and this is right and this is the the proper and correct way to be. Everything that we do and everything that we are grows out of this reality that Christ is exactly right in everything that he does. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 12, there, there was a voice saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. You see, in the end, the wisdom that Christ possesses is not distinct from the wisdom of God. It is the same wisdom. And that wisdom which he has received, he has received by being God. It is his. God has given it to him because God has it and Christ has it. And everything that is wrapped up in this truth of the wisdom of Christ is rooted and anchored in the fact that it always aligns with everything that God is. You will never find wisdom or truth or power or goodness or righteousness or faithfulness in anything that is opposed to God. And Christ is always in alignment with God. This is why not only is he great in wisdom and faithfulness, but he is also great in truth. Look at at the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John, chapter 1. Starting at verse 17. I'm sorry, starting at verse 14. We'll read to verse 17. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So not only does it tell us that the wisdom of God is opposed to the wisdom of the world, but it also gives us the reality that the only wisdom that actually is wise is God. Everything that is wise came from God, and specifically, everything that is wise came from Christ. Look, there is a tendency among some in the church to try and return to the Old Testament as a means of righteousness. Um, There are those who believe that you should only eat Old Testament dietary restrictions, and those who believe that you must only worship on Saturdays, and those who believe that you have to observe the holy days, and those who believe all of these things. And all of these things are a return to the law. And to take it very plainly from what Scripture tells us here, to return to the law is not wise. Because grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And they are set here in John as being opposed to the law, as being set in a way that is different from the law. The law never justified anyone. The law never saved a soul. It can't. It's only through the mercy and the truth of God in Christ that we're saved. And we need to recognize the truth of who Christ is. We need to recognize the truth that is contained in him. This is why Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And in John 17, verse 17, in the midst of the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Now, I love that Jesus said this because he's speaking in part about the word, the written word, but he's also speaking about himself. John is the one who gave us this understanding of Christ. In John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, And the word was with God, and the word was God. The Greek word for word is logos. He is the logos of God. It's the word from which we get the logic, the wisdom, the truth, the word, the spoken reality. And in the midst of all of these things, Jesus himself declares that that your word is truth. Everything that Jesus said is truth. Everything that Jesus does is truth. The word written and the word made flesh is the truth of God. Beloved, understand this. Your understanding of God must be shaped by who Jesus Christ is. You cannot have a right understanding of God apart from a right understanding of Christ. And this puts the cults on their ear. Because every single cult that you want to name has a wrong understanding of who Jesus is. The Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Catholics, the largest cult in the world, they all misunderstand who Jesus is. Every single one. If you're wrong about Jesus, you're wrong about everything. And we have to drive this home in our own hearts, and we have to drive this home in the truth of everything that we teach and everything that we are. Because Christ Jesus is the truth of God. He is the wisdom from God. And he is also, in this faithfulness and truth and and wisdom, great in obedience. John chapter 6, verse 38 says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to the will of him who sent me. So what Jesus defined his entire ministry as was, 
Whatever God the Father has sent me here to do, that is what I will do. Now, however you want to label this, there really is no word that fits better than obedience. And it seems a little bit strange for us to think about God the Son obeying God the Father, because they're both God. But that's exactly how Jesus defined it. He obeyed God. And he did it by way of example for us, but he also did it because God's will is sovereign over all things. John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but whatever he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Jesus' life was a life of obedience. Even the King submitted to the authority of the Father. Chew on that for a while. Let that filter into your life because so often we want to argue back and say, God, you don't have the right or the authority to do with my life what you want. It's my life. Well, (laughs) it might be yours, but it's only yours on loan. In the end, it belongs to him. And he can do with it whatever he wants. He has the right. He has the power. He has the wisdom. And he also has... The truth that whatever he does with it will be better than anything you could have. Christ obeyed. And in that obedience, he also had to learn suffering. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 says, It was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. I've spent a lot of time dwelling on this idea of Christ being perfected by his suffering. Because Christ is already perfect. So then how is the perfect Christ perfected by his suffering? And it'll cause your brain to hurt. But ultimately what we see is that Christ is perfected as the captain of our salvation. He was finished and fulfilling the role. He had to suffer. He would not have been able to save us. He would not have been able to complete the task had he done it apart from suffering. But it goes further than just suffering. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews describes it in chapter 5, verse 8. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So somehow the obedience of Christ and the suffering of Christ are intimately and intricately and inextricably woven together. Beloved, hear this. You're going to hear people who tell you that if you follow after Christ, you will live a life free of suffering. Since they are calling Christ a liar, you're going to have to decide who's lying. Is Jesus the liar or are these fools? Because Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. Jesus said, the world is going to hate you. Jesus said, this world is full of sorrow and suffering. And Jesus himself had to learn obedience by his suffering. And as one who learned obedience by his suffering, he also became the captain of the salvation for all who themselves obey him. Now let me ask you this question. If Jesus had to learn obedience by suffering, how are you going to learn it? By suffering. You're going to learn obedience 
Because obedience only really matters when it's hard. Obedience only really matters when it's not necessarily what you would do if you had your druthers. It doesn't really count if it's what you would have done anyway. Obedience finds its maturity. It finds its strength. It finds its teeth, if you will, when it's challenging our wants. And the way we learn to obey is in the times of pain and sorrow and suffering. To lean in. To lay hold of Christ and to refuse to let go. To know and to declare with everything that we are that He is worth the loss of all things and that He is to be trusted no matter what it looks like. This is where obedience begins to take on real strength and power. This is where obedience begins to transform not only our lives, but the world around us. Because if you look at how the world suffers, it doesn't look anything like this. The world suffers with a lot of whining, a lot of finger pointing, a lot of, I'm a victim, a lot of, it's not my fault, a lot of, it's not fair. That's how the world suffers. And you only have to stand around on any street corner for about 30 seconds to find the world suffering and acting like the world acts when it suffers. But you can search from coast to coast far and wide and maybe never find too many people who suffer like Christ did. It is something to aspire to. And it is something to practice in the small ways that God gives us the privilege of suffering for his name. Because it is a privilege. It is a grace. It is an opportunity to learn to walk with God in a way that is stronger and deeper than you ever could have known without the suffering that teaches you these things. For us, it helps us and it grows us to consider the greatness of the suffering of Christ and to consider the greatness of Christ in His suffering. Because nobody will ever suffer like He suffered. To the extent that He suffered. To the degree that He suffered. And the depth and the humiliation and the sorrow. And certainly nobody will ever endure the wrath of God as Jesus did. But it is possible for people to suffer with the same character as Christ when they are surrendered and submitted unto Him. And it's to that that we should aspire. Because the greatness of God in us grants us the privilege of suffering well. He is also great in His humility. Now, we can't talk about humility without understanding that God condescends to love us. Okay? God doesn't owe you love. You're not worthy of His love. You're not worthy of bearing His name. You're not worthy of being chosen. There's nothing in you that He should have chosen. We read in 1 Corinthians, and and it said that God chose the weak and the foolish and the empty and the nothing and the despised. So if you want to brag about why God chose you, those are the words you should be using. Empty, weak, foolish, nothing, despised. Not, hey, I'm pretty good, so God picked me. 
Amen? We need to recognize the truth that God's love for us is gracious and glorious condescension. And we use that word in our life and culture in a way that makes it bad. It makes it negative. Oh, don't condescend to me. But the truth is, when God condescends to love us, it is glorious. It is wondrous. It gives us an understanding of his love that puts him in the right perspective and us in the right perspective as well. It is the condescension of God to exhibit his love to us. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 5, Paul writes this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, I want you to think about what Paul just expressed there because we usually deal with this as teaching us how we are to exhibit humility and that's its primary application. But we need to recognize something that's clear but hidden here and it is that Jesus Christ was God before he put on flesh. And when he put on flesh to come be one of us, to die in our place, to bear the punishment of our sin, to endure the wrath of God, to, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, to literally become our sin, Jesus set aside everything that he was. He divested himself of his glory to put on the stain of humanity. Now, Maybe, just maybe, there's somebody here who is arrogant enough to say, yes, he did, and I was worth it. But I hope not. I hope that when you pause to consider what he was before he became one of us, you will look around this miserable rock and say, if he did it to save even one out of all of us, he still did way too much. We don't deserve it. And that's exactly the right attitude. Because we don't deserve it. What God gives us is mercy. What God gives us is grace. What God gives us is love undeserved. And since it is undeserved and unearned, you did nothing to get it. And having done nothing to get it, you can do nothing to lose it. It's His. It is His mercy to lay aside his glory and become one of us. And this reality makes him perfectly suited to be the messenger of our peace. Because he stood in both places. He is God. He is man. He is that which binds us together between the two. He is that which allows humanity to touch the divine. And he is that which allows the divine to be human. It's it's glorious to consider. And he is the one who has become our peace with God. 
John chapter 14, verse 27 says, Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. John 16, verse 33, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, It pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things by, to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So it is in the death of Christ Jesus that God was reconciling all of us to himself. Which is why Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, that through the blood of Christ, we now have peace with God. It's the reality that everything that Jesus did was about bringing those of us who God has chosen out for himself into his own presence and into his own good nature. To to draw us into him, to draw us into his love, to draw us into a relationship with him that changes everything. This was his intention and this was his purpose. And he made peace with God for us. He broke down that barrier of war and hatred which had separated us from our God since the day of the fall. Every single one of us is born into this world hating God. Every single one of us is born into this world actively rebelling against him. And we fight against his rule and fight against his authority all the days that we live unless God intervenes and changes our hearts. We we don't love God naturally. We hate him. And the scripture is absolutely unequivocal about this. So it is the mercy of God in Christ that made peace between us and God. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll start at verse 14. He himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So what this tells us is not only has he created peace with us between us and God, but he has also created peace between us and our fellow man. Because the focus of what Paul is writing there in Ephesians is about the distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. That deep-seated ethnic hatred that the Jew had for all who were not Jewish. See, the ancient Jews looked at the world through this lens. They said, you are either us or you are them. You are either Jewish or you are not. And if you are not a Jew, you were a dog. And they viewed you with that disdain. It's it's woven throughout the whole of the Old Testament. They, They knew that they were the people of God. But what they missed was that God would one day do a work with the Gentiles. And what Scripture tells us is that in Christ, that middle wall of separation that divided the Jew from the Gentile has been removed. And all who are called are brought into a relationship with God by the death of Christ. But it also has the effect 
of bringing us into relationships with one another. It closes those gaps and closes those barriers and allows us to love even though we are different. Now this applies not only between the Jew and the Gentile, but it also applies within the body of the church itself. Look at Romans chapter 15. And listen to how Paul describes it at the close of his letter here to the church at Rome. Romans chapter 15, starting at verse 7, it says this, Therefore receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to the fathers, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, For this reason I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles shall hope. Now, may the God of hope fill you all with joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the, Holy, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you are also full of goodness filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points, reminding you, because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. What's the idea? The idea is that the separations that existed between the Jew and the Gentile, and between people within the body of the church itself, are artificial and false and need to be broken down. And beloved, it's not just between Jew and Gentile. There are churches that are so divided on the question of race or culture or ethnicity that they do not even deserve the name of church. That sort of thinking has no place in the body of Christ. And for us as Christians, we need to recognize the truth that if somebody is found in Christ, they are your brother whether they are different from you or not. You need to love them with the love that is found in Christ. And you need to receive them with the, with the same way in which Christ himself received you. You may not like their practices. You may not like their culture. You may not like their music. You may not like their food. You may not like the color of their skin. But all of that is wrong and sinful on your part and needs to be repented of as sin. Because what God calls us to do is to receive one another with grace and mercy in the same manner in which we have been received. Look, here's the truth. If you think that somehow or another you are sacred and special and more so than some other, let me remind you that the first work of Christ was not to the Gentiles, but to the Jews. Let me remind you that it would be us who are the outsiders. It would be us who would be hated because we are different. You see, it's sin all the way around. It was wrong when it was done to us, and it's wrong when we do it to others. For us as followers of Christ, it is the excellence of who Christ is that lets us rise above it. It is the excellence of who Christ is that gives us a heart for other people that is not muddied by that taint. We need to recognize this, and we need to declare this. We need to let this be the truth of how we live and how we speak and the relationships that we bear in our lives.
This needs to be the mark of our lives as followers of Christ. We need to be setting aside the distinctions and the differences that the world wants to use to divide us against each other. And ultimately, that's going to look a lot like mercy. See, Christ is also great in mercy. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7 says this, When the kindness and love of God our Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out abundantly on us through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Here's the reality. If you think for one minute that you deserve any of this, you have not seen Christ clearly. Mercy is by definition that which you cannot deserve. Mercy by definition is asking for that which you have no claim to. When we cry out to God for mercy, we are not asking Him to save us because we are special. We are asking Him to save us because He is good. This is what Christ came to fulfill in us. It is all the mercy of God. And it is worth your time to spend much time dwelling and considering and contemplating the mercy of God in Christ. Because that is your only hope. If you want to come to Him by your own works, come to Him by your own righteousness, come to Him by your own strength, you can do that. You can bring your big pile of works and say, Lord, judge me by this, and He'll do it. But you won't like the judgment that is pronounced. Because the standard of righteousness by which you will be judged is the perfection of the law in its totality. From the moment of your birth until the moment of your death, have you lived in absolute, perfect accord and obedience to the Word of God and to the law of God, not only in what you do, but in what you say, and more than that, in what you think? If you've never considered that before, and you had this sneaking suspicion that somehow you would come to God and say, well, my life's been more good than bad, and you'd get into heaven by that standard, I want you to dwell deeply on that thought. And if you think that your life is somehow good enough, you should be very, very afraid. Because the only access to God is through the mercy of Christ, which has been extended to us by His goodness. I beg you, don't lie to yourself and try and find some other way. You are deceived if you think you can. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace in this day. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us what it looks like to consider Christ in all the majesty of who he is, God. And I pray that somehow in the midst of this, this very poor attempt, you would let some truth sink into all of us. I pray, God, that your glory would be made plain and that our hearts would be enlarged to see Christ as he is. Teach us to love you and to honor you. Teach us to love him and to love him. And God, help us to know that everything we have and everything we are and everything in which we hope comes from you and is rooted and anchored in the majesty and the fullness and the goodness of Jesus. 
We ask all of these things in his name and for his glory alone we pray. Amen.